Welcome to Healthcare IT Today. I'm John Lin, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hung. The world of technology and healthcare ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news meshed together in new ways, which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. And today we'll be doing a topic roulette where fate will choose the topics. And be sure to follow the show on social media at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 17 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. Are you, do you like putting your uh, fate of your life in the hands of a dice? <laughs> well, I mean, you live in Vegas, John, not me. So <laughs> I should be asking you that question. But no, I mean, this will be fun. And we're letting fate decide what we're going to talk about. Uh, today, we are recording this episode on Gary Gygax's day, uh, which, you know, he was, he was the creator of, it, of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, for those that you don't know. And, and the traditional game is played with these weird number-sided dice. And so... We've got 10 topics, and right here in my hand, for those watching on the video, I've got a D10, or a 10-sided dice, for us to roll to determine which topic we're going to talk about. That was a really nerdy intro, Colin. I think a lot of the IT people will like that. <laughs> it was a really nerdy intro, wasn't it? <laughs> but yes, I remember back in the day, these were like, if you had a set of these, you were that was that was it. That was the thing, right? So, um, for, we should but make for more, more decisions modern... in healthcare with a, a 10 sided dice. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we should make more decisions this way. We should make more. <laughs> but no, but I'm excited for this. Will be, this will be fun. We've got some pretty interesting topics, you know, and, uh, you know, um, we'll put the, the actual topics into the show notes so people can see we actually did have 10 chosen and we're randomly going to let this die tell us which one we're going to talk about. Sounds good. Let's see All what right. the first one is. Let's see, what the, let's see what the first one is. Here goes the roll. Here we go. It is number five. So topic number five is Cerner and Oracle health. Interesting. Wow. Ah. Well, um, I'll lead off on this. Uh, I think we're in for a change. And I I think, you know, it's the best example of that is that it's called Oracle Health Conference next month for the user conference. So, you know, that that shows you how much Oracle is putting their imprint on Cerner. And the the Cerner brand is going to be gone after this year, I think. Uh, for the most part. So uh, that's the big first step. Yeah, as a marketer, I can't disagree with you. I am totally with you on that, that all signs are pointing to a total integration of Cerner into the Oracle family. And I don't think it's a bad thing uh, necessarily. I, I think, because I, th- I think it's just a, to me, it's a marketing thing. I don't, I don't really see this as any indication of, you know, improvements or degradation in their solution. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think that's not what a product really change. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but yeah, I agree with you. I think what's making the news is it's very clear they're pushing Oracle Health. And let's be honest, even before they bought Cerner, Oracle did have a lot of health applications and health technologies to bring to bear. So in, in some ways, it's actually a pretty good news that the entire portfolio is now being rolled together. Uh, and, you know, at least for me, my hope is that this name, hopefully, you know, if, if it comes true, this name change uh, will actually bring that portfolio closer together. Well, and the big change to watch too is that the DOD seems to be on schedule with the rollout of their Cerner implementation, I guess Oracle Health implementation now. So that that was good news because Oracle Health had been hammered by the VA who hadn't had such good results. So, you know, the question is, will this DOD news kind of temper it and say, well, it's the it's the VA that screwed up, you know, and that's the organization that has problems. You know, the DoD did just fine. So, 
is it the VA the problem or is Oracle Health the problem? And, you know, Oracle's going to take some egg on the face for sure, regardless. But, uh, you know, I think that was finally some good news for the Oracle Health people uh, is that the DOD has been quite successful. And they came out with some recent numbers, Klaus did, as far as EHR vendors, acquisition of hospitals, new hospitals, loss of hospitals, some information like that. And Oracle did show some growth in hospitals uh, with the Cerner solution. And uh, many people asked the question, though, was that mostly DOD? <laughs> you know, how, how many other ones are doing it? The other one I would ask is, is it international? which when you look at the Oracle Salesforce, it's one of the most international Salesforce that exists that has relationships in every country and every hospital and health system throughout the world. So, you know, that's a huge opportunity for Cerner, I think, you know, that really like even companies like Epic can't compete with because they don't have that global Salesforce. Yeah, you know, one of the things that surprises me, uh, you know, just on this topic of Oracle and uh, and Cerner is actually how little they've been in the news since the acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times what you'll hear after a big acquisition like this is, you know, uh, executive shuffles, mass exoduses, uh, you mm-hmm. know, culling of product lines and canceling of contracts. Like, you, you know, you kind of expect to hear these kinds of things. And now I got to tip my hat to Oracle. Like for this most part, they've stayed out of the news. Like nothing major has really come through. I mean, we yes, we have some change in leadership, and we've had those changes, but it's nothing like earth shattering, right? And yeah, at least a few buildings have been sold in Kansas City, but that seems reasonable considering how many offices Oracle has. <laughs> Right. But it's not like Oracle came in and just said, oh, guys, we're going to can this product line because we're going to roll everyone over to here and we're going to integrate this and you're going to replace that. I mean, I'm sure that's happening like slowly and maybe more in the background, but they've done a pretty good job to keep themselves out of the bad news category, at least in terms of the press. Yeah, that's fair. And it'll be interesting to see how it progresses, right? You know, how does this trickle down to the end users? Because we have seen some executive departure. And the question is, where will Oracle invest in the product? And will they continue to invest in the product and be able to roll out the features that are needed? Uh, You know, I look at some other EHR vendors like ECW and how they're integrating generative AI and those types of features into deeply into their product. Is Cerner Oracle Health going to do that? They should be able to. Oracle has how many AI people, uh, you know, available to them, but will they? And will they do it in a way that actually is conscious of the needs of the provider users? Uh, that that's going to be interesting to see. Or will we see a slowdown where they haven't invested because they're dealing with so many other things? Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I, I I like what you're saying, and there'll definitely be a company that's interesting to keep tabs on over the next few months. Yep. Let's get on to the next topic, John. Let's get uh, right. roll the dice again. Topic two. Let's see topic what two. it is. And that number is topic number eight. Oh, look at that. I rolled oh, an eight. Patient, patient experience. experience. Oh, one of my Colin's favorite favorite. Topics. <laughs> that was not a plant. I have my other camera. I'll, I'll show that I actually did roll an eight. Um, yeah, patient experience. Always a great topic to talk about. Uh, I think sadly, of course, it never gets enough attention, never gets enough funding. But um, I think one of the things uh, that I've been reading about, writing about a lot more is a big focus being put on the intake side and the patient acquisition side. And that's it, it's a, it's been a good outcome, but for sort of not a reason that you would think. I, you know, The reason why there's been a lot of movement in this area, in my opinion, is because hospitals and healthcare organizations have been struggling to get patients in the door. 
And one of the easiest ways and one of the best ways to improve that is to improve your intake process. So I'm talking about, you know, finding a physician, physician matching. I'm talking about, you know, booking an appointment online and getting a hold of someone, chatbots, all these kinds of technologies are things that I've certainly heard of more and more people embracing and adopting, which overall helps the patient experience. Yeah. I, I take a dimmer view on this, uh, you know, so no shocks there, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's challenging because we see pockets of improvement. Like you said, the online self-scheduling has been embraced by a lot of organizations and made the experience better. But my trouble with all of this topic is that the system itself is so dysfunctional and disjointed and disconnected that can we create a great patient experience, you know, for someone? And I, you know, it's it's kind of like I've said with EHR. Everyone's like, oh, Apple should create an EHR. And I'm like, can Apple create a great EHR? You know, when you look at the burdensome regulation and reimbursement requirements, is this even possible, right? And so I, I feel the same when it comes to patient experience and and especially when it comes to like patient navigation of the health system, Because you think about how disconnected it is for someone who has problems that cross multiple chasms. Sure, we treat a cold just fine, right? We can treat allergies just fine. We can treat a broken arm just fine. We can, you know, these isolated things we do just fine. But when something crosses those chasms, right, where it's a respiratory issue and a gastro issue and whatever, right, like, and it has some other symptoms that aren't quite clear either, like, how do we coordinate that? And sadly, primary care is not doing that in a good way, at least for the most part. I think that's why people are turning to concierge medicine, to direct primary care, is because there is the hope that they will do something like that. So I guess that's where I feel like patient experience is falling short. Sure, pockets of improvement on patient experience. We're turning off the the, the monitor so it's not ringing at 3 a.m. so they can sleep, right? I mean, we're, do, we're doing stuff like that. But when you talk about the comprehensive patient experience across multi-specialties, I, I think it's just a, a hard nut to crack. I, you know, difficult to argue with you, John. I, I would agree. I mean, overall, I think patient experience still leaves a lot to be desired, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and you're right. We have made progress in small, some certain areas, but overall, I mean, we still got a long way to go. And I, and I go back to something that uh, um, Dr. Boise said to me at Qualtrics, right? You know, you know, have we? Do we love patients uh, as much as brands love their customers? And the answer that she gave, which was very insightful, was no, not at scale. <laughs> Individually, I think we do. I think doctors care, nurses care. Yeah. I think that you know, at an individual level, you know, we do try to do our best when it comes to patient experience. But collectively, as a system, as a you know, we just don't do it at scale yet. And I think that's your point. You know, we we've got that pocket approach. We really haven't taken that comprehensive approach. Um, but I'm encouraged. And overall, I'm a bit more positive because I'm encouraged at least by the front end being fixed uh, and uh, you know, and and making that a lot easier and finding a doctor is a lot easier now than it was before and matching them based on more than just availability, right? You know, I want a doctor who's seen you know people like me before, treated you know people like myself before. You can now do those searches. That to me was unheard of two years ago, right? Um, so I think we're making progress in in those zones, and so. Overall, though, I, I think you know we've got a lot of work to do, but I am encouraged. 
Yeah, I think there's also the element of accessibility of communication that's improving it. So, you know, before, what would you do? You'd call into the nurse line to get your question answered, hoping that they'd maybe ask the doctor. Now you can send it as a secure message and often get a reply from a doctor, right? And so I, I think there's some accessibility things that are helping with some of the process. But, uh, you know, it, it's a challenging thing to educate a patient on what's next, when you're talking about multiple comorbidities, right? And so I think that's where it does need, you do need a relationship with the doctor and a communication channel with the office to be able to solve a lot of the patient experience problems that happen because they go into the doctor's office and then they go home and they're they're kind of on an island wondering what, you know, what, what do I do next? Am I supposed to wait for a call? Am I supposed to call back? Am I supposed to look at the portal? You know, what is the right uh, path for treatment? You know, do I continue the treatment? And so I think opening up these lines of communication is is a big step in the right direction uh, that saves us having to call into that nurse's line and sit on hold and (laughs) all of those things. So in that regard, I think the patient experience is getting better as well. Yeah, no, agreed. And you know, we, you and I both know lots of companies that play in this space, of course, right? We got companies like Tiger Connect and we've got people like Seamless MD and, you know, people like Healthwise and, and people, you know, who kind of fill this gap and void of, you know, basically keeping people from having to call into a call center to get that information. It's all forwarded to you via text message, via email, via the portals. They do a pretty good job of that. And, and you're right. I mean, we're, the good news is we've got technologies to solve it. Now it's just a matter of making sure it gets deployed more widely. Yeah, and maybe the uh, AI to answer it uh, and to prioritize there it. Uh, <laughs> there you go. More, more of that. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lin and Colin Hung. Today, we're doing Topic Roulette, where we're letting this D10 choose the topic for us. So, John, we've talked about two very interesting topics so far, of course, uh, Cerner Oracle, and now we've just spoken about patient experience. Let's let the dice choose topic number three. And that topic is number one. Oh, oh look at that. topic for a reason, artificial <laughs> intelligence. Is there any health IT product that's not an AI product? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I, I, I well, think pretty much everyone uh, I've seen has been trying to implement something. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately or fortunately one of these cases where if you don't have AI somehow incorporated into your product roadmap or your marketing, people kind of look at you funny right now. <laughs> it's true. and I mean, I guess in some ways it's a good thing because AI can benefit any solution and could potentially benefit it. You know, sometimes you, sometimes there's some companies trying to fit a square peg in a round hole uh, and you're like, did you really need to do that? No, but uh, hey, I get where you're coming from. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the blowing up of artificial intelligence has been pretty impressive and ChatGPT has just enlivened the minds of people in a way that, uh, you know, was sh- is shocking and, and surprising and, and has been exciting because it has made AI and the related technologies feel like something that's doable now rather than, oh yeah, one day we could do that. And so I think that's what's cool about it. And I, you know, I think no nothing is clearer. Like I said, you know, like I said, every health IT company is incorporating some sort of AI into their solution. But when you look at like the pure AI solutions for ambient clinical voice, which you know is one of my favorite areas, 
that is accelerating massively and quickly and is solving a massive problem. Uh, you know, we still need to get the cost down, I think, uh, for it to really be as impactful as we'd like it to be across all of healthcare. But I think that is still one of the most exciting areas and most interesting areas that's going to solve a lot of the problems with burnout that physicians have as far as the documentation burden that they suffer from. No doubt. Uh, you know, there's huge potential of AI. Uh, also huge, you know, there's equal downside risk, right? You know, it, improperly implemented AI can cause problems at a scale that we've never seen before, right? I, mm-hmm. I borrow that quote a little bit from Reggie Townsend over at SAS. You know, he, he basically said in a speech, you know, uh, not too long ago that with AI, we now have the capability of creating problems at a scale we've never seen as a human race. Hmm. Um, and, and that can mean, you know, everything from the doomsday scenarios of what we see in like Terminator movies, but but also smaller than that, right? Like, because you just even look at something like ChatGPT, it's consuming data and information that's unavailable on the web. Well, what happens when a lot of that information on the web is incorrect? Maybe no, not, not maliciously, but just incorrect. And, you know, is that AI then is going to pick that up and incorporate it into answers, therefore perpetuating that error and that mistake? You know, that's something that we're now just sort of waking up to the reality of, oh, yeah, the tool could do that, right? And so what 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 kind of um, cautions or precautions are we going to put in place to prevent that? You know, what was interesting for me in this topic of AI, two recent um, uh, things happened. One, you know, we had that big announcement from President Biden that, you know, around this, you know, a bunch of companies got together and said, you know, we're going to agree to be responsible in the use of AI and, and, you know, voluntarily adhere to some of these rules and and, uh, guidelines that came out of it. I mean, we all can kind of scoff at it a little bit, of course, it's voluntary, but at least now we've got a starting point to say, oh, what is good AI versus not responsible AI? Um, and so there's at least a framework that people can begin to look at and go, oh, okay, I need to start doing these things. So even though I think, I don't think it has a lot of teeth <laughs> and I'm not really sure how many companies are going to adhere to it, but at least there's some movement around what's good and what's not good. There's there's a line now starting to be drawn in the sand. And I think that's significant. And I expect the same from a lot of companies in, in healthcare. I, I fully expect within the next year, we're going to get the healthcare equivalent of this. Where Where is AI what's proper use of AI in healthcare, what's good and what's bad, I think that's going to be defined. So, you know, that's one piece of news in the AI front that I found pretty interesting this this week. Yeah, and it's fair. I mean, doctors have worried about Dr. Google for a long time and patients going to Dr. Google. Well, Dr. ChatGPT is going to be even more interesting, right? Like, uh, and, and doctors have to embrace it to some degree and understand how to navigate it because patients are going to come in with this sort of analysis of their condition, of their symptoms. So, uh, you know, Dr. ChatGPT is going to be real. It is real. Many people are using it today to ask questions about whatever their symptoms they're experiencing. So I I think we just have to navigate it. But I, I think on the ethical side, the thing that I like most about this is that in technology, we often implement technology and then say, oh, what are the implications? And it feels like now we're at least asking the implications at the front end, right? And we realize there are going to be ethical implications. There's going to be diversity impact, right? Depending on the data set that's being used. There's 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 all sorts of questions that we are aware of and we're asking at the front end rather than asking, you know, oh, just implement it and let's, let's talk about those issues later. And so I guess that's where this feels a little different than maybe past technologies. Uh, I, I think some companies won't. They're going to go 
head first into it and say, screw those ethical issues or other things. And so we're going to have to think about that and see the impact of that. But I think at least there are a lot of people saying, what is the impact of this and how should we be using this? And what is the right way to use this data so that we have the right impact and that we're not discriminating against people just because the data is not there? Or or what does that even look like? You know, just talking on, on that use case, I was just on a webinar literally yesterday um, that was hosted by uh, Decimal.Health, UC Davis, uh, NTT Data. Our good friend Lisa Esch was, was on it. Uh, but also Chris Boyer, who, by the way, hosts an amazing podcast, which you should check out, Touchpoint Media, uh, along with his, uh, his uh, cohort, uh, Reed Smith. But, but he was talking about how they're using ChatGPT uh, to help patient engagement. So back to the topic we were just talking about before, how they have not ChatGPT, it's a ChatGPT-like tool. So first of all, don't, you know, don't, don't misquote me. They're not using a publicly open API. Uh, they're using something that's private and closed. But they're using uh, generative AI to help build correspondence for patients to motivate, better motivate them to engage and do the things that the docs want them to do, which to me is a perfectly fantastic use of AI, right? So now they're able to personalize at a level that they've never been able to before because before they had to manually craft these, right? But now using some technology, they can build more personal uh, personalized correspondence, some personalized outreach, and it's making a difference. There, it's just anecdotal for now. There's no numbers or anything, but but he's very encouraged by this. And I'm certainly very encouraged by that type of use case because I think that, to me, is a perfectly great use case for healthcare for this type of generative AI. It doesn't really get into the clinical side, right? And all the ethical issues there and potential traps. It's just, hey, like we can use this to do something at scale we've never been able to do before. And I love that part. Like even look at remote patient monitoring. Can we scale remote patient monitoring to the scale that it needs to without AI? And my answer is no. We have to have technology like that to scale. So I think that's the power. Awesome. All right, let's get to our final uh, topic here with the dice, John. And that number is going to be topic number three. RPA. Wow, kind of an extension of the artificial intelligence. Uh, You know, (laughs) the biggest area I see RPA happening is in revenue cycle. Mm. I think we see it all over the revenue cycle. And using the robots to do a lot of the work with revenue cycle has shown just tremendous impact. We saw that at HFMA. You know, all these companies that we were talking to, FinThrive was working on different RPA solutions. Uh, you know, pr- pretty much every company <laughs> at HFMA was talking about, hmm, how do we use RPA to enhance the uh, revenue cycle solutions that we're offering? So that's the area I see it being used the most. Yeah, I, I, get, I agree. I mean, RPA is interesting because to me, it was sort of this orphan right out there before the big wave of AI came through. And then all of a sudden, when that wave of AI came through, all of a sudden, RPA got a lift as well. Because yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, well, it was not that it was never useful. I just think acceptance of it and and use of it, people got, oh, this makes sense. Um, and, and when it got into the mainstream of consumers' minds, RPA then became... It, it it sort of because it had some biases against it too. Like, oh, you're gonna you know gonna automate these processes. How do I know it's doing a good job? They were complex to set up, you know. But they've come a long way, and I agree with you. I think the one area that I hear about um, RPA the most is in the rev cycle side. Uh, there's a lot, as we know, there's a lot of repetitive processes there. There's a lot of processes that don't need a human being to do, uh, and and they can instead manage the exceptions. So yeah, very encouraged to see uh, companies like Vin Thrive and others, you know, really push this technology forward. And 
And yeah, I think some people could maybe confuse it a little bit with AI, and I don't think that's a bad comparison. And I think people go, "Hey, it's AI, but that's fine." Really, is robotic process automation, and that's all about you know improving the workflow, which I you know we're all for, especially on that uh, on the uh, revenue cycle side. Yeah, I was talking to Innerbridge, who does a lot of RPA, and that uh, they they had an interesting uh, comment about we all think our process is so unique that it can't be RPA'd. You know, that it can't be, you know, optimized and automated. And he's like, we've pretty much found that that's not true. You know, that, that, that there's, you know, sure, every process could be its own little snowflake, but all of those snowflakes could be automated to to handle this process. You know, the other area I see RPA being implemented a lot is in faxes. Mm-hmm. You know, healthcare still gets all these inbound faxes, inbound documents, and using RPA to categorize the document, to understand the document, of course, layering on some AI to understand which patient's for, those types of things, but then using the robotic process automation to say, oh, is this a lab result? Or is this a pharmacy prescription? Or is this a patient record? Or whatever it might be, using the technology and the automation just saves so much time and improves the accuracy of the person who has to go through those faxes and, and categorize them and make sure they're routed to the right place. I, I love it. Uh, you know, I love that we're applying RPA to a, an older technology like faxes. That. Tell me the truth, Colin. <laughs> yeah, I love faxes. I have one over here. No, I'm kidding. I don't have one <laughs> over there. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, again, you know, RPA should be playing a bigger role in healthcare, but hasn't yet. And um, you know, I'm fa- this is one of the side benefits of the AI uh, wave is that I think we're going to see more RPA emerge. Um, and also, I think let's be honest. I think RPA has always been there, and I think maybe now we're just we're sort of labeling it better because I think there's a lot of been, there's been a lot of automation, right? Whether you call it macros or whether you call it something else in the past, uh, these have been there. Um, now they're just given a nice umbrella label that we can all rally behind. I think the challenge too is many organizations just have so many projects to work on. Yeah. So it's like, how does RPA or these other solutions? How do they rise to the level of you know, the attention that it needs. And so I think that's the challenge as a CIO is is really, you know, I remember when they implemented a EHR, they said, we have 5,000 tickets, where do I start? And yeah. some of these tickets are a one-hour project and some of them are a six-month project, you know? And how do you prioritize that, let alone the thousands of other systems that you have that you or that you could implement to improve your organization? That priority is what makes a CIO, you know, job challenging and also makes what a great CIO is when they're able to kind of manage that and prioritize that. Well, and that brings us to the end of this episode, John. So thank you for, for uh, you know, for this D10 and the randomness. This was actually a lot of fun. We should probably do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Hey, listen, thanks to all of you who tuned into this episode of Healthcare IT Today. You can find more details about our show by checking out the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com and on social media using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hong, along with my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lin. Thanks for listening and have a great week.